Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a little to say on the subject of the films of 2005. It begins by addressing the somewhat large King Kong-sized elephant in the room by noting that this was the year in which a certain much-beloved science fiction series attempted to resurrect itself with a new Hollywood film incarnation. And to this extent, it succeeded in almost every sense except that it didn't. And not even the name of the series' visionary creator, written in large, friendly letters on the movie script's cover, could rescue this project from being an ignoble flop. But this is more attention than the film Serenity deserves, and so the guide moves on to other targets, such as Tim Burton and his sanity-defying attempt to remake the beloved childhood classic Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory by replacing the unpredictable Gene Wilder with the daddy issues Johnny Depp, who very much channeled Michael Jackson, every child's plastic pal who was fun to be around. Much like Michael Jackson, Wonka lured children to his estate with the promises of a really exciting time. The fate of four of the children, who each ran foul of various confectionery preparation mechanisms and subsequently developed mutant superpowers, could be said to be fantastically allegorical. Only one child, Charlie Bucket, survived unharmed, at least physically so. Emotionally, he had to watch whilst his parents died horribly, sealed in murder rooms beladen with ticking death traps, a punishment for taking one of Wonka's custard creams without asking. Orphan Charlie Bucket went alone out into the world and grew up to begin a new life as Batman, who haunted the black and white streets of Sin City by night. Or was it by day? It's hard to tell. In any case, Sin City was a metropolitan dystopia, popular with mythanthropic teenagers, but boring and tedious to any adult with even a glimmer of understanding about the word subtlety. Frank Miller, the creator of Sin City, is of course the third worst writer in history. The second worst writer of all time was George Lucas, the flatulent, whose prose was so terrible that during the press screening of Attack of the Clones, four members of his audience died from internal injuries, and the actor, Hayden Christensen, only survived his delivery of the stilted dialogue by gnawing one of his own arms off. Lucas was reported to be disappointed by the prequel trilogy's reception and was about to embark on penning a further batch of Star Wars sequels when his own jowly neck flesh, in a desperate attempt to save life kind, oozed upwards to smother his brain to death and then took possession of his zombified corpse long enough to sell the film rights to Disney. But these later events were a faraway thing in 2005. Well, still living, Lucas had set himself the task of finally answering for once all the great questions fans had been asking since 1977. Where was Luke and Leah born? How did their mother die? And why did Obi-Wan Kenobi spend so much of the intervening time talking to digital characters? To this end, he created Revenge of the Sith, 
a film of such apparent awesomeness and epic quality that even before the actors had entered their green sound stages, it was already determined this was the best of the prequel trilogy and that Darth Vader should be on all the merchandising, even though he wasn't in the film for even a minute. And so, as the animation computer's green bars finally reached 100% on their arduous task of rendering CGI, and the John Williams Memorial Android algorithmically shut out the film's forgettable score, one humble Lucasfilm employee found himself in the historic position of being the first to witness the completed film. Uh, hello. Uh, Revenge of the Sith, are you there? Good morning. What is the purpose for which I, the second greatest film of 2005, was created for? Well, for decades, fans have speculated... Hang on, did you say the second greatest film of 2005? Yes. Oh. Is that a problem? Well, are you not more epic than Kingdom of Heaven, the Ridley Scott-directed historical drama of the Crusades starring Orlando Bloom, Jeremy Irons, Liam Neeson and Edward Norton? The Kingdom of Heaven was a post-9-11 neo-colonial bloated dirge made by self-loathing post-Christian armchair moralists. Mention it not. Are you not more mythical and allegorical than C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? C.S. Lewis could bore the shit out of his audience with his magic wand-waving cat god, but only I could tempt my victims to see me twice, even if they hated me. Well, if you're not the greatest film of 2005, who is? I speak of none other than the film which is showing after me. A cinematic treat of such wonder and friendship tested by dark evil that my poster is unworthy of sharing the same walls with it. And yet, I will carry the trailer through it. A film of such popularity, its box office earnings will surpass even mine. And you yourself will take up a new fandom and become part of it. And I shall name it also unto you. And it will be known as... Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Oh, really? I've seen some of those. I thought them a wee bit dull. The books are better, I hear. By a strange coincidence, the books comprising the Star Wars Expanded Universe were later demolished by Disney to make way for a hyperspace Star Wars sequel trilogy. A similar ignominious fate currently awaits the ape-descended hosts of the Revenge of the 80s Kid podcast. Currently, they are lost deep in the Crab Nebula aboard their stolen spaceship, with precious little fuel remaining before the engines shut down and the vital life support systems go offline, with a printed-out apology and a note from the cleaning droids asking them to please all expire in a neat orderly pile in the waste disposal room. They will appear in our narrative in precisely 30 seconds when Leo utters the words, Hey, I've got an idea that will take our minds off our inevitable doom. Although they regard their latest predicament as their darkest hour, it's only because they are totally and blissfully unaware of the array of sinister and dangerous forces that arch-nemesis Big Bay is currently mustering against them. The 80s kids are not friends with Big Bay, and never invite him around for dinner. Hey, I've got an idea that will take our minds off our inevitable doom. Uh Why don't we discuss definitively all the films of 2005? Because I understand that hasn't really been done before. How do you feel about that idea, Justin? Seems like an excellent idea, yes. And Ian, you're down with that? Well, I suppose it kills the afternoon before we get killed. 
Yeah, okay, cool. So that's what we're going to do. And, of course, the first person to suggest a movie for us to pick over will be Justin. Go on. (laughs) Kick us off. Well, let's start with a disappointment first, because we can only build up to to positives. And so my first choice is War of the Worlds. Big fan of the book, big fan of the uh, kind of seminal kind of 1950s uh, thing. So I looked... I looked forward to a modern interpretation, and hey, it's got Spielberg and name on it, you know, what's going to be bad about this? And then it begins to fall apart. That My key problem, unfortunately, is Mr. Cruz in this film, who is, by all accounts, trying to play an everyman character, which is possibly one of the most ludicrous castings ever. Tom Cruise is not an everyman. He, he will never be just someone's failed husband and, you know, single-parent family. You think Tom work. Cruise doesn't look like a guy who might get divorced? Wow. <laughs> uh, because I'm talking about his screen persona, because okay. he never plays these roles. Um, so that's already a big kind of like, okay, I don't really buy this. There's some departures from the original story, and it kind of plods along. It's got drama in it and stuff like that, but I don't know. It just kind of feels... Flat? Yes. Yeah. Play going, what was the point of remaking that? Okay, admittedly, there's some stuff in it which we haven't seen in the past, like the kind of, you know, the idea of the Martians kind of terraforming Earth. And so that was quite interesting. But you know what? I wanted more of that stuff because that was kind of dark and gritty and brooding. And But in the end, it's got an, anno- an annoying Dakota Fanning, annoying Tom, Tom Cruise, the trope of the indestructible dog. I mean, for God's sake. I mean, not. I don't advocate cruelty to dogs, but I am sick of dogs in sci-fi films that can survive anything. And this is another example of it because, my God, we have to have a nice, warm, fuzzy ending. And you know, we've got obviously the payoff, the same reason why the Martians died. But I don't know. I just, yeah. I mean, I just think like you just kind of go, oh, that was that, and actually. I kind of preferred the the Hollywood version I'd seen before with the aliens flying around and blowing stuff up. And this just doesn't seem to have that. This kind of, in the end, it reduces the aliens down into a more kind of one-on-one situation. It just, I don't know, yeah, it just I just kind of went, oh, well, that was that then. It should have been spectacular. It should have been amazing. I didn't really like the idea of them going, they're already on Earth and they come out of the ground. That was like, uh, uh, really? No one like you... Like, we seriously didn't detect this. The fact that we, you know, we all do dig up the ground. We do have sensors. No one saw giant spaceships. So there's that that you kind of suspension. And then the fact that they all, everyone dies leaving clothes, which I imagine Spielberg was making possibly some kind of Holocaust reference to Auschwitz with the clothes. I don't know. But what it does is kind of leave you and just go, oh, okay, well, it's a pretty clean way to die, I suppose. The intensity of it is kind of lacking because that just removes that visceral nature to it so yeah all in all kind of a bit of a waste of time really yeah i can explain it's a very bizarre compromise to make the machines were buried and the aliens just teleported down into them and burrowed the way up well why can't they just teleport them and their machines down to earth that would make (laughs) sense they can still be underground and dig their way out that's fine it, it is a strange gambit to leave your machines underground. No one would kind of go, oh, we've seen this before if they crash from... Because they are aliens, you know? We don't, well, you know. We, we, do, we do watch that. We do watch films and go, yes, aliens are invading. 
that's fine. We don't have to be clever about it. Just thank goodness in the in the four billion years or whatever it was uh, that they were buried in the ground, there was no technological advances in their war machine technology. Why didn't they just do it when they arrived? They wanted to terraform the Earth when there were less people and technology around. It doesn't really make any sense. It, it makes sense. The aliens just want the planet Earth, and humans are in the way. You know, what if they? How did they know the humans were there and needed to be displaced? Did they anticipate it? Would, if it was just like a jungle, would they go around vaporizing lions and things? Yeah, it's it's really weird. And yes, he gets rid of the heat ray with a much more PG-friendly disintegrator. Uh, but that's fair enough. Whatever. Uh, there's no losses for Tom Cruise in this. His entire family survives this. His son runs off this go, I want to fight on the front line against his aliens, and just turns up alive at the end. He's just walked away from the battle scene back to his mum's house. So there's yeah. there's no there's no there's also threat, but there's there's no tangible sense that he's actually losing anything. The war machines were interesting. I like the machines themselves. They were the way the legs were kind of those long, stringy it was a very interesting way of seeing tripods walk, because driving tripods walk is a damn difficult thing to do. Um yeah. But what bambles on me was the aliens themselves. Now, Steven Spielberg, in inspiration for making E.T. was, as a child, he watched the 1950s War of the Worlds and had a hair-raising experience when they met the alien in the house. Uh, so you'd think he, he's, his mind would be encapsulated in, in recreating that in his version. And what we get is a very kind of bland, CGI, almost friendly-looking alien. I mean... H.G. Wells, visionary, brain with tentacles, uh, is, is your alien monster. It's a very sanitized version of a head with tentacles. It, is, it could be a friendly creature. It's, it's very strange. And you kind of come out the other end going, well, what was the point of it all? And that's a strange thing to say, because I, I am a huge fan of War of the Worlds as well. I've recently reread the book, because it's free online these days. It's, it's a fantastically hypnotically interesting book to read. Some of the science is a bit old, but it's just fascinating to go through. Didn't Asylum do a pretty good uh, War of the Worlds close-to-the-book adaptation? And they're like on, on record of having the closest version to the book? I would love to see a period version, you know, which would be great. But I'd just like to follow it. You know, in the books, you know, and, and to, to a certain extent in the 50s version as well, you do introduce these characters, you know, that have a major play in the, in the kind of, in the book. Uh, in this, though, they are irrelevant. I mean, there's they're like just Tom Cruise and then there's some people he meets along the way. I mean, in the book, you know, the fact that London gets kind of turned into this kind of red wasteland and you're really struggling through this. And in that, they kind of go, oh, now we're in Boston and, and that's the end of the film. That's it. It's kind of like there's no sense of impending threat. There is, I say, a couple of bits in it that are well well done. You know, I like I like the kind of turning the, the fields red. And you think, oh, wow, yeah, this is going to really go somewhere. This is going to add all the kind of the drama and you're going to feel like we're really on the brink of being massacred, the human race. And it just promptly moves on and oh, everything's fine. It's, it's, and, Spielberg and, is unfortunately drawing too much on it. He's nicer, friendly at films, I think. He's and, too scared to go the other way. And just to finally round off on the other point, the thing with the aliens terraforming Earth and come back at for later, actually I do have an objection to that. And that is they really should have known about, about bacteria then, shouldn't they? The aliens in the original novel had lived on a sterile world for so long, it was it was a concept that had been lost to them. In the book, it goes into more detail about it. They never buried their dead, and their reckless destruction showed they had no concept of the putrefaction process of dead things. So they lived on a bacterialist world. Whereas in this one, they, they seed worlds. They should know about single-celled organisms. 
What's going on here? Uh, again, it's 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 strange to try and think of a new twist about why all the, all the aliens just drop dead. But there we go. Leo, I think you've probably just about covered it. But uh, while we're on a downer, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh dear. Again, what is the point? Oh God, it's a story we, we all know. And seriously, we all know it. And I appreciate it's the most famous thing that Douglas Adams ever did. And he obviously wants to monetize it in his later years when he had a family to, to raise. But goodness me, from the beginning again, in a different medium, we've had the radio series, the TV series, the book, the video game. Uh, now uh, we have the, the, you know, the motion picture version. And the thing is to make it more concise. Probably the most famous things about the original series was the book entries. And uh, you know, it would set up the premise, and then it would riff lots of jokes off that premise. Whereas in the conciseness of the film, it would set up the premise and then cut it short. It wouldn't go into the jokes about things. Uh, the Babel fish were cut off oddly short. You, you, you kind of expecting all the other gags towards the end to start coming in. Nope, no, I'm not going to bother with any of that. Uh, and it occurs to me the modern audience must have been extremely baffled by this film. It's hard to know who the actual audience is. Cause the original radio series is quite cynical and a bit biting in some, in some of its commentary. The opening gambit is the total annihilation of all human life on Earth. And on, on a radio series or a book, or, you know, or comedy series, I suppose it's, it, you kind of wing it. But I think for an American audience sitting down for the first time, the opening gambit is, oh, you're all dead, by the way. And these, and these assholes are the people, only people you've got to watch the rest of the film now. Seems, ugh, I, I, I feel sorry for new people coming into this, for whom this was their first experience of the Hitchhikers universe. Uh, and again, Hitchhikers cannot seem to progress beyond, oh, the first opening story, first series is quite good. It, it's, it really seems to falter and go off on tangents in every single other version that's been made. And so many things were plot threaded for future films. You know, they, they really lay down a lot of Zaphod and the fact that he has a, a hidden program mission in his head and he's on a scheme. He's not just some cool dude who stole a spaceship because he felt like it. No, no, no. He's got some great epic mission, which we know, of course, is to find the ruler of the universe from other media. But it's, it feels very sad that this key plot point was laid down because it's got absolutely nowhere to go in this version of the film. It's one of those films, and I can only think of two off the top of my head. This is one of them, and the other one is, well, I may as well say it's Tron Legacy, which is very much, uh, to me anyway, like you're a child and your parents have got you in the back of the car and they're going, oh, we're going to a fun fair. We're going to a theme park. And they go, oh, fantastic. And you, you know, you're working up to it and you're, you're anticipating this of being in the theme park and the parents driving, they park in the car park and you get the monorail to the ticket booths and you go through the ticket booths and then uh, they walk you up to the edge of the first ride and they point at it and go, wow, isn't that exciting? And they go, yeah, I haven't got time to stop at this one. Uh, here's another one. Uh, do you like that? Yes. No, we haven't got time to stop at that one either. And then they just walk you past all the rides, point at them, let you see having other people having fun with them and then they walk you back to the monorail, you get back in the monorail, get in the car, go home. And how disappointing that experience is to be given toys or to be shown. It's almost like torture. And uh, the weird thing about this one, unlike Tron Legacy, you haven't got any, any way of knowing if they'd have pushed the ideas they were casually bringing up and throwing away. You have no idea of knowing what those might have been like if they'd have taken their time. The reverse of this is the new Planet of the Apes series, uh, you know, which which even had that reverse effect of 
they put an advert up and for the super prequel, you know, it's all still humans and it's like one intelligent ape. And then at the end, there's a bit of a revolution, but we're a long way from the planet of the apes yet. And you're like, really? Who wants to see that? Turns out everybody turns out it's a great idea. Fantastic. Who knew? This is the reverse of that. It's like, no, we have to cram in all the quote unquote good stuff right now because otherwise. It'll be terrible. But we've got, as you said, Ian, you know, radio series and books and audio recordings that are not the radio series. And, and as I said, every version should be slightly different. It's like everyone is basically the same, but has some thing that is not part of the others and plays out in a slightly different way. Oh, the television series as well. The problem here is that when you look at that, it's just like, well, this is the weakest version of this. And that's including the one with the man with the papier-mâché and rubber head stuck awkwardly to the side of his costume made by the BBC in a time when there just wasn't a special effects budget. I mean, the fact that it is weaker than that with all the money and all the things, because, like you say, they set gags up and then don't follow through with them. If you think of great comedy movies of the British vein, there are things like uh, The Life of Brian. And The Life of Brian includes sequences where people just, you know, shekel for an ex-leper, sir. And then it continues. It takes that shekel for an ex-leper, sir, thing. Oh, this guy came along, he cured me, blah, blah, blah. It's a sketch. The Monty Python guys were like, well, we're doing a sketch. It's just a bunch of sketches put next to each other. No, we're the popular people's front of Judea. And people quote those bits because they're sketches. This is like one of those films where they start the sketch and then they go, oh, we haven't got time to finish the sketch. Quick, move on to another one. And that means you're always three sentences away from a really good laugh and you never, ever get it. When they said, oh, it's supposed to be a different interpretation, it's not supposed to be the same, I thought maybe I've been harsh on it, and I sat down and I watched it again. I was like, nope, the actual fundamental problem with this is that it doesn't trust its own material enough to allow the material to breathe so it smothers it, and that's just unforgivable. And apparently Douglas Adams, who died in 2001... Was, was heavily involved in the preparation or writing of the script. Presumably it was carried on by other people after he left. But how does this say about Adams's reflection on Hitchhikers? I mean, the film version of Hitchhikers being kicked around for decades and finally here it is. And after much reflection, this is how he felt it should go, apparently. I think there was always this idea that at the beginning, he was trying to get away with it. Like he was like, they're never going to let me make this. It's ridiculous. And it was just a game. And then it became monstrously popular, and that's when he started to have this kind of icy feeling of dread that it was going to encase him and entrap him and he was never going to get away from it, which is indeed what happened. The Dirk Gently novels are written with so much more care and passion and effort. And nobody really knows those, and they've tried to make a television series of it, and it's quite blatantly apparent the people who made that Without, you know, he was dead already, had no idea what was good about Dirk Gently and what was, you know, I mean, it is virtually impossible to really capture because Dirk Gently is so clever and it's so much about things that most people don't know anything about, such as, you know, the rhyme of the ancient mariner and stuff like that. And it relies on, you know, a serious kind of Gaiman-esque look at mythology and so on and so forth. 
I'm I'm reminded, and and it is true that the wife has walked by in the background, so this is possibly why, of the guy who wrote Cherry Pie. That was a big hit. And then he wrote several other things of far more musical worth than genius. The big one is Uncle Tom's Cabin. He wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin at the same time as he wrote Cherry Pie. He wanted the album to be called Uncle Tom's Cabin. He wanted the lead song to actually be Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the music execs overrided him and said, no, Cherry Pie's going to sell better. It's a bit more of a poppy, funky song. And he was like, yeah, but it's got got no meaning to it. It's got, well, it's Uncle Tom Cabin's an important song. Yeah, Cherry Pie was a big song and the album was called Cherry Pie and everything. But his legacy is now a song about basically having sex rather than something that's meaningful to him. Yeah, and in exactly the same, not that Hitchhiker's Guide has no meaning, but he said, he literally said, my process was to write an amusing science fiction comedy kind of entry for the Hitchhiker's Guide to take a footnote and then I kind of blew those footnotes up to become uh, coincidentally the main plot points. And by the end of it, I was just doing it like a factory. I would go, oh, let's just write some nonsense and then that's going to become the main plot. And he really hate, he didn't like it by the end. And yet it was the thing that made him his career and he couldn't get away from it. So yeah. So I think that kind of answers that. Wow. We really have gone on a downer in this episode at this point. We need something to lift us up. Justin, please help us. You got us down here. Get us out. (laughs) Rising from the ashes of something that went terribly horrible. Those of us who followed the progression of Batman films in the 90s and then Northridge were pretty much given up by this point. Were we ever going to see Batman return? Oh, yes, we were with Batman Begins. This is something that we had not seen before. There were no bat nipples. This was stripped away of all the kind of ludicrous kind of visual stuff and left with something that seemed somehow realistic, even though that seems a crazy thing to say for a comic book adaption, and yet still being very true to the source material. Batman Begins was a breath of fresh air, really. I mean, it was once and finally we had killed the terrible kind of shoemaker kind of incarnations. And here we have a credible Batman. It's grim, it's gritty, it's kind of no-holds-barred kind of version. And the performances all around are pretty good. Not my favourite Batman, but Christian Bale has a has a reasonable job. I mean, he's criticised for being a little bit too kind of, I'm Batman. Uh, he's strange kind of rice-ping voice, but... Um, nice touches, you know, it feels, it feels very familiar in some ways, kind of new and, and exciting, you know, and, and think came away from it with tremendous hope how we would continue this on to further things. And indeed it only gets better really, the, the, the next two films. For lifelong kind of Batman fans of myself, I breathed a sigh of relief. I was like, oh, good. We are, we are back on form, casting people right, uh, making a serious attempt at a, a Batman film. And yeah, it's all, all good, all good stuff. I thought the opening was uh, very cleverly constructed, the way it conveys a lot of information in a very short amount of time. It starts off as a nightmare, but you don't appreciate that. It's him falling through the shaft and being rescued. Does his parents yeah. die then? And then he wakes up, it's a nightmare, and he's in, he's in that prison in another country, and he has a fight in the yard, and then he's in solitary, and then Ronald turns up and talks to him, and then there's a bit more, the, the backstory is laid out about about him giving up and you know trying to kill Joe Chill and being 
chicken out of it, hawked out of it, or whatever, by Rachel. And then he goes off yeah. wandering the world. And then here we are, and then off we are to train with Ryrood. And all this gets out the way an amazingly quick. If you look at the timestamp, it's like they get through all this setup nonsense, which we know, so much we know, and so much we don't know, and is new and is interesting. Before, he was just some kid whose parents died, and then he trained martial arts for a while, and then just decided to put on a costume and go around and be, and be wacky. Whereas with here we can see the roots of where his philosophy of how he should approach this came from, because a, a cabal of assassins who use fear taught him how to become a, a mythical figure of menace to his enemies. You know, to have your fiction of, of what yourself is extend outwards like a weapon itself. The best origin story of Batman I have ever seen, and there's been a few of them, the, the cartoon version was pretty good as well, actually, but this is darn fine and really grounded in reality. I think that the uh, prevailing opinion at the time is that it's good thing at last that we have a Batman movie that's actually about Batman and about Bruce Wayne and Batman and that duality, which is why, you know, Nolan dials back. You've got Ra's al Ghul, uh, and you've got uh, the Scarecrow, but, and you, you've also got the, the sort of the crime bosses. And uh, people were very happy about the fact that it takes time to establish, all, you know, Gotham as a character and doesn't just leap feet first into the Joker. You know, I've heard criticisms. You know, some of it is silly, and it's like, well, some of a lot of Batman is silly, and I think people were kind of like, yeah, so does it dance that line between the theatrical um, and fantastic and the realistic adequately enough? I think it does the best job that it can. So, yeah, I can't criticise it for that. I mean, I enjoyed it. I watched it twice at the cinema, so I must have uh, must have been right there with it. Uh, at the time weirdly i realized afterwards subsequently that batman is the only dc character i've ever really cared about as a you know to see anything going on and over time i kind of lost interest i find batman jokes hilarious you know such as uh the most important thing in life is to be yourself unless you can be batman in which case be batman that kind of thing i, I can i can totally get behind that but um, I care about what's happening with Batman at the moment. He's done really. it. I think, I think, you know, we've got some very theatrical kind of stylized versions. If you want that, you can kind of turn to kind of Tim Burton. If you want something gritty, you've got that. So in, in some ways, you know, it's kind of done, really, I think. Anything more is just like it's Batman again. I think it's just taking uh, taking Batman seriously. I mean, the fans have always wanted this Dark Knight kind of approach to the character, and the camp has always creeped in. And and, the, and this trilogy, I'd say, the camp is kept secondary to uh, a thrilling, good, epic story of of justice, which is not always a pleasant and nice thing. And Commissioner Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, he was he came across as so real to me and so believable as just kind of a man who was trying to be the best cop he can and is in over his head and he's just kind of hanging on the situation by by his fingernails really compelling it's it's the I mean, it's, it's the best commissioner so gordon i've ever seen i think so i think I, th- I think that's the thing it's the standard's been set now really and i think in a way you don't really want people to bother now until a time has gone by because we've had two extraordinary performances of the joker and it's very difficult to see anyone topping either of those really it's been done, I think, for a while now. I mean, I'm I'm not particularly excited about Batfleck, just for that reason, really. Not the fact that it is particularly Ben Affleck, but it's the fact that it's kind of, we've seen it, done it, 
what more are you going to do now with it that's going to excite us? So um, I'm I'm content as a Batman film that these things exist. You know, I yeah. had like five films, let us say, that I am happy with the portrayal of that character, and I get a lot out of that. I can rewatch those and enjoy that world again. This was a great kind of start of that, you know, um, renaissance of the character. This is the high point for him. I, I can't see another film being made about Batman that's going to touch the ceiling as well as this se- series of films did uh, ever uh, for, for quite some t- a generation must now pass. Sorry, so Ian, you haven't actually had a pick yet. What uh, what film would you like to discuss? What well, burning need do you have to discuss something in 2005? We just get the, the Michael Bay's entry out the way this year. Uh, if, if you wish, uh, what have you to say on the island? I kind of like it. Uh, it's not a film I own. But I, I found it tolerable enough and interesting enough. It has a few, uh, like, logic quiggles in my mind that won't go away. Because I, I remember the sort of the talk, the talk that was going on around it, going, you know, we're, we're examining the issue of clones. And, you know, if you could get a clone, you could have a clone to harvest it for organs. Is, is that ethical? So, well, no, of course it isn't. If you created a sentient being, it's a sentient being. You don't own it just because it has your DNA any more than you own your children. Essentially, you know, so no, no, you can't harvest them. That that is murder. That is genuinely murder. There's no ethical dilemma going on here. Uh, and this, the premise is a bit silly, but I thought it, it was interesting enough to sustain itself. I just wonder because this is this is, I'd say would be before Michael Bay goes Bay Formers and he becomes the figure that we we turn and loathe for very varying reasons. This is kind of his last kind of. Here's a here's a popcorn flick we can all just enjoy for a bit of spectacle and enjoyment in the futuristic setting. Well, I think I'm going to have to reapproach what you just said there from a slightly different angle, which is that at this point in history, Michael Bay is Mr. Pearl Harbor and Armageddon. One of the interesting things about this one is that the island represents the time at which Michael Bay and Steven Spielberg became co-conspirators became colleagues because uh, people forget that the island is uh, executive produced by Steven Spielberg and and indeed as is Transformers so yes but possibly there's lots of people that don't even remember the island at all it was a huge bomb like it, it nobody went to see it and a part of this has to be down to the fact that it's called the island and i say this because when i went to see it uh it, it was the opening weekend i think or the weekend after it had opened and i was like oh this sounds like a quite an interesting movie and i was still remembering the michael bay of bad boys and the rock so i was like well this looks more like my type of michael bay project than the other stuff that he's done recently so i'm gonna give it a go i like a big shiny popcorn flick and my sister uh, was middle sister who was probably in the region of being about 17 or 18 at the time was passing through on her way to do something but she wanted to stay at my flat so she was asked should we go to the cinema i want to go and see the island she said all right then she came along we went in we sat down we watched it we came out so did you enjoy that she said yeah it was really good i didn't know what the hell it was about i thought it was about an actual literal island although going to be like shipwreck people and castaways and stuff so the fact was that they never they couldn't in the marketing convey to people heavily enough what the film was actually even going to be about do you think that was because it was supposed to be some kind of plot twist that they're all clones that are being kept in a in a base somewhere you think that was well if it was if 
if it was supposed to be a twist, then it didn't look, work very well because there was a huge stink about the fact that it was a kind of an uncredited remake of a, a sort of Z-list exploitation flick called The Clonosaura, which it, it totally kind of was in the same way that The Terminator ended up, you know, James Cameron had to give money to Harlan Ellison. I'm not sure that the creators of The Clonosaura actually got money the same way that Harlan Ellison did because they're not, Harlan Ellison and Harlan Ellison probably didn't care or, you know, whatever uh, about this and, you know, because, you know, paycheck and all this. Yeah. So, it, yeah, the, the island um, was it was an ill starred, ill fated project. And ironically, for that reason, I think it's the thing that convinced Michael Bay that he never wanted to do anything but mill out super mega blockbusters for teenage boys ever again because he he measures his success via how much box office he's bringing in when he did pain and gain he kind of did this gritted teeth well i there's part of me that doesn't want to do transformers anymore and i want to do this instead and he got critically the crap kicked out of him and not much box office for pain and gain so i think we've probably seen the last of that as well now it's all transformers turtles probably in future thundercats and he-man and you know it's just going to be a constant parade of all of this stuff and every last one of them will have a swimsuit model in a smalls in it mm. so there we go yes <laughs> we just don't seem to be able to get out of the weeds today do we i'm going to talk oh, about something I something gonna... i love oh is oh. that okay with everyone yeah yeah, yeah. eon flux the film they made for me and <laughs> probably no one else really <laughs> honestly what is there to love about eon flux let me count first of all is that because they were making a feature film starring charlie's theron of eon flux uh, they dusted off all of Chung's original animations, the whole series and the pilot and everything, put it in a, a beautiful DVD box set with loads of features and sold it for the princely sum of £15. And I bought mine from Woolworths when that was still a thing on the day of release and watched them all. And I was like, this is pretty crazy. I wonder how they're going to make a film of this. And then I went to see the film. And I saw the film and I was like, well, they did it then. That was, that was pretty much a film of Eon Flux. Well done. I wonder who else is going to see it. Answer, pretty much nobody because who would go and see that? Just me. Uh, are you familiar with this, uh, this, the whole thing, Eon Flux as a concept, gentlemen? Yes. As I understand it, yeah. it is the same characters and sometimes situations, but it's, in each episode, it's completely reworked. So it's like a different alternative universe where all the relationships are switched around and loyalties are switched around and it's about different things. So yes. in many ways, this is of all the franchises that can do a film version. It's the one where a film version can just sit neatly on the DVD shelf next to the animated series and be totally harmonious with it. Although, even though it's incredibly clever and very satisfying, I think for people who didn't know what Neon Flux was, they might be lulled into a suspicion that the cartoon series is kind of about this story, which it isn't. And it's a shame we can't convey that to the people watching this film. Just let them know this is why it's clever. This is the interesting thing. It's completely contiguous with what's gone before, whilst being its own thing. 
It's the world's first and only to date, although, you know, maybe in the future we'll all be this narratively sophisticated conceptual series. So you always have, uh, I think it's Colonna and Brainia, but I stand to be corrected on that. I know Brainia is one of the two factions that appear. So you have two factions. One is always called this and the other one is always called that. Sometimes Eon Flux works uh, in Colonna and sometimes in Brainia and sometimes she's just a dissident who works against both of them and sometimes she's an enforcer who enforces laws across both of them. There's a doctor called whatever the doctor's called that I can't remember but he has the same name every time and sometimes they are past lovers and sometimes they are deadly enemies and sometimes they only encounter each other for the first time in the episode and sometimes but he's always called the same thing and he is always a close part of the center of the story and then there is all sorts of other science fiction paraphernalia that goes on around it and every episode ended or began sorry rather with a little speech and part of the joy of the series was that the speech could be interpreted a number of days. It set up a relationship between the Doctor and Eon Flux and the factions and all of this. But it was kind of generic. And so what the series writers did was go, well, in each week it will mean something different. And so it's, the, it's sort of like an animation science fiction series poem. And the Eon Flux film takes that and completely runs with it. It's all the same again. They just make a feature length version of the same setup. And it's full of, I mean, it's like um, Zardoz on Acid without Sean Connery in a loincloth, which is always going to make Zardoz better. Sean Don't forget Connery the porn tash. Yeah, exactly. There's, you can imagine all of those really cringing. And then with the fact that Zardoz was made in the 70s, and so now we've got this sort of CGI fest. It's one of the very few, I would say, properly out there, wacky sci-fi movies that exists. And it's for that reason, it's kind of hard for many people to sort of sit through it. I absolutely love Eon Flux. I think it's just the fact it exists alone is enough. Weirdly, uh, we were discussing earlier the Wachowskis uh, before we were on air, and we are going to be discussing the Wachowskis on the show. This is very much the kind of film that I think they think they want to make and ought to be making. But... uh, no they haven't yet i don't even you know when you say something like oh, the matrix most important film in the 90s or which is what we all said more or less one way or the other this goes beyond that and this is in the space where they want to be you know if you compare three hours of cloud atlas to an hour and a half to two hours of eon flux eon flux wins the weird game every day and it's just exactly what they wanted but uh they haven't done this yet they haven't managed it so yeah, that's that's why I love Eon Flux. Yeah, I think I need to re-examine uh, this. I think I, mean, I have seen it. Um, I'm being a bit mystified by things just going. I don't really want to know what's going on, but but it certainly was very appealing to me in terms of the, the strange kind of uh, the look of it. And yeah, I I, I think I, I I want to see it again now to re-examine it a bit more in depth. What, one of the things that is very difficult about Eon Flux is that it has some actiony bits in it, but it's not an action movie. It's a science fiction movie with a ridiculous, I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous science fiction premise. The people of who were the criticizing it at the time it just, they couldn't get their heads around it. 
I think on set there's things like Pete Postlethwaite appears wearing the most ridiculous costume, speaking the most ridiculous words, and that is a homage to 70s, in my opinion. I think they consciously went... The only way to sell this to anyone is just to embrace its 70s post-hippie, pre-punk roots in completely acid-induced societal decay-inspired science fiction weirdness. And so everybody kind of got together. Pete Postlethwaite understood where he was coming. And when he appears as the sort of like Sky Bishop... Uh, speaking, you know, telling the story of this weird thing that has happened, you have to be like, with it, yeah, okay, I get where you're coming from. And if you don't get where you're coming from, it just looks horrendously bizarre and odd. So, you know, and that's where it is. It, it's really a science fiction movie that happens to have cool visual effects and action bits in it. It's not an action movie. And that's, I think, people find that difficult. If people wanted something to watch that wasn't Eon Flux, maybe they could go and watch the uh, Fantastic Four movie that came out this year. But would they want to do that? Ian, would you want to do that? My reaction, my review of the film, having watched it, was, oh, they've kind of done X-Men for children. Which is not necessarily a bad thing, incidentally. And not that X-Men is the film you can't take children to, necessarily. The first film is really just like a load of origin stories. It doesn't actually do anything with it. There's nothing there that's so complicated that it makes you furrow your brow. It's fairly straightforward in what it does. Here's our friendly batch of mutants. Here's the black cat villain for them to go up against Victor Von Doom. All the things it does right are out of a thing of, you know, like you say, trying to make it family friendly. This is fine. But all the places where it went wrong are to do with the fact that they they didn't take any risks about making it a bit more bonkers. Film studios as a whole have had a huge problem with the concept of Doctor Doom because, uh, let's face it, this guy is a, a dictator who owns his own country, who then does terrorist things in the, you know, United States, wearing a green cloak and a suit of armor, and he's a master of both science and magic. That's fine. That is totally a children's villain. It's like, you uh, know, Lord well, Zed from Power Rangers level. I understand that. You understand that. The problem is that the studio are like, well, people won't go for it. And the problem is this. People totally buy all sorts of crazy stuff as long as you sell it. And they just didn't sell it. And that's what's wrong with both of these Fantastic Four movies is that they're trying to be too conservative and they don't just go balls to the wall. Yeah, it's bonkers. Enjoy it. And that stops you from enjoying it. I think that's where I come down on it is that they don't ever give you anything to kind of embrace. It's that same line from, you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen through Van Helsing. You're in that thing where it's like, well, we'll go far, but we won't go too far. We'll come up to the line, but we won't cross it. And it's like, no, the line you want to cross is the line where audiences go from, oh, that was a bit mediocre, to, wow, that was Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, I think I just just a waste of opportunity, really. I mean, because I think Ben Grimm is particularly good, and I like the fact that it's not 
CGI kind of adds something to it. I know they're doing the new, obviously, version will be CGI of the thing. But um, so some of the characterization is pretty good. Uh, the Doctor Doom is just dreadful. I mean, he's just that character is like someone out of a TV uh, show, not 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 a credible villain. Um, so it kind of it builds and then doesn't really do anything. And then there's a kind of a half-assed kind of battle at the end. And you go, is that it really? Is that surely the guy, the bad guy needs to be immensely powerful to take on four people? It never seems like a challenge, obviously, because he seems about the same level as one or two of them at most. So clearly four of them are going to trounce him. And so, yeah, they, at least in the second one, they kind of contrive to make him better by throwing plot at him to give him some powers. But this one all seems a bit ineffectual, and and you kind of go, oh, okay, all right. That was that then. Um, Seemed like it would be good, but just in the end it was a bit like... "Mm." Uh, you know, let's, let's talk about, uh, Sin City for a moment. Uh, the thing is that at the time I think I was quite excited by Sin City and in retrospect, it kind of happened. Uh, the, the thing about this, the thing that's very exciting about Sin City is that it cost very, very, very little to make that, uh, Robert Rodriguez wants to make movies for as little as humanly possible. And he pulled it all together to make Sin City in front of a series of green screens in his garage, pretty much. And the idea was that in concept, in theory, he could make Sin City. And then if everybody liked it, Sin City 2 would only be 18 months away because he could just repeat the production process because he'd just done the maths on how long it had taken him to make Sin City and how it meant that you could book act out of their schedule because you could just assemble it afterwards and he was terribly excited and confidence was high and they slated Sin City 2 for 2007 they they said they'd even had a distribution release date that they sent to distributors and then Robert Rodriguez went and did other stuff and it didn't happen and then obviously last year we got a sequel which I haven't even bothered with and I think that is the problem I think that in retrospect it's a kind of it's a thing that happened and either they should have left it be or they should have committed to their plan and they didn't do either too long on the follow-up for the film i mean it's i kind of hinted this in my skit i encountered sin city when i was in university and uh, one of the guys there was a big comic book collector and so i was just borrowing his copies of sin city to read it and talking to him afterwards about it as well and really enjoying this this uh this this connected universe of all these different characters and everything and being really fascinated by it and the style and the kind of you know uh the noirish dystopian violence of it all you watch the film and the film i went to with great fascination because not all of them but most of the stories in there were ones i'd read and so i was really interested to see how they were going to do it and i thought my god they, they really have just brought the coin book to life here it's great but it's just like a dawning of maturity or something or maybe something else inside me that's more cynical but now I look back at it all and go it's a bit tedious like i say misanthropic teenagers will love it but anyone who likes subtlety will find it tedious. Am I wrong? No, I, I, I think my main problem is that you... I mean, I I love Sin City, the original source material. I'm a big noir fan, so I was looking forward to this. And the problem is that it is so literally adapted. You, you do ask yourself, like, why bother making it? They missed a trick there. You can take all that sensibility and all that idea and weave together something unique but what you have is direct 
kind of lifting page by page, panel by panel, in a, in a similar way that they did with kind of 300. Because so much they respect the source material that even you know, Frank Miller's in there as well as kind of co-director. And he's, you were talking about different media here. Comics have their own media. They work on that level. You're not generally invested in the characters and their emotions as much as you are films. You're much more pleased by visuals in a, in a comic. You flick through it. I'm not saying that they, comics have to be um, just superficial, but that's a big part of them. And you can be dazzled by, you know, the kind of, certainly with Sin City, by the style and, the, you know, the kind of the iconography that comes with film noir. But the problem with I found with Sin City is you took that and it's just all visual. I come away feeling really cold about all the characters that don't really care what they're doing or anything because really it just goes, look, isn't this pretty? This is great. Look what we can do with this and that. And you're like, yeah, it's not enough. It's like I want more depth from a film. And it just does not deliver because it's too slaved to the original source material. So I haven't gone and seen the sequel. I'm not really, you know, kind of can't really be bothered, to be honest. Um, Great casting, you know, interesting kind of things. It's just that it just doesn't hang together for me. It's just it's not exciting. I don't I, I want to get invested and really care about it. And it just feels like I am watching kind of a cartoon. I'm not that harsh on it. I quite like the Sin City movie, the original Sin City movie. Fine. It's great. But that co-director credit for Frank Miller, which is essentially, you know, when you break it down, Robert Rodriguez said, I wanted to give Frank Miller a director's credit because at certain points I didn't bother with a storyboard. I just gave people copies of the comic book because I thought, well, that'll do. And as making storyboards is part of the director's job, I just thought, let's give him a credit. So it's it's kind of an honorific. It's like, yeah, okay, so all the rest of the stuff, the working with the actors, the working with the crew, making sure that everything is working correctly, working with the cinematographer, making those important decisions about what to film when and all that organisation that you do with the producer. Frank Miller didn't do any of that. He wrote a comic book. I, I but... just assume that because he went on to do The Spirit, which is bloody god-awful, that, I mean, Frank Miller went to direct, but I just assumed that he was learning some ropes. No, this is... Okay, this is to be honest, this looking is... at the spirit, he clearly didn't learn anything. So no, make well, no, he didn't, because that's the... Po- <laughs> what you've got to remember about Frank Miller is that, by all popular accounts, he's gone mental. Hmm. And so what Robert Rodriguez was doing was feeding a troll, poking a bear. He was like, he was trying to honour a man who had done such amazing visual graphic art that... When it came to making the movie, Robert Rodriguez wouldn't really wanted to pay homage to that. And obviously they probably met and they got on and it was all fine. And they went and saw Frank Miller's gun collection and looked at his big collection of misogynist pornography and all of that kind of stuff that Frank Miller loves in this day and age. Yeah. And Robert Rodriguez still was like, yeah, OK, give him the credit. This is possibly why Robert Rodriguez canned his plan to make the second Sin City movie, because he made this nice gesture to an artist, comic artist that he respected, and then found Frank Miller in a tree with binoculars outside his house and going through his garbage cans. I don't know, but I'm just speculating here, because obviously he has nothing to do, Robert Rodriguez, this is, with Sin City 2. And in the meanwhile, Frank Miller has gone, oh, well, if all it is to be a director is to write a comic book, then uh, I guess I'm a director. Here I go to do the spirit. You know, Robert Rodriguez was like, no. I mean, there may even have been a conversation where he said, well, yeah, I gave you a co-director's credit because I believe that you 
contributed to the direction of the movie in a heavy way. But that does not actually make you a director. But he couldn't explain it too late. and The beast was out of the box. So, yes, possibly the movie should be uh, forgotten Talking of heavily stylized Star Wars, Revenge of the Sith, it's time. Come on, guys. Uh, well, I will say this. Of the prequels, this is by far the best. Damning uh, with faint praise. Uh, you will look up yes, in the dictionary. That, you will find your quote there to give uh, context. Indeed. Um, and actually, what it did do, which I think is a good thing, after seeing it, I immediately wanted to see um, episode four, which I did. And after after watching this film, I wanted to see a better film as well. It is okay. <laughs> that's all I'm saying I didn't get angry at it in the way that I did like the first two particularly Attack of the Clones really wound me up I didn't do that I kind of went well there it is and okay that kind of makes sense there we go we've got we've got the rise of Vader there fine and then promptly kind of jettisoned it sending it away into the distant space then just clamped onto you know my my, my the, the, the three the three films of the franchise it was adequate I think and that is about as much as I can say on this film. And so, yeah, I watched it for completeness, and that was that. Was that. Yes, you do go into this with a sense of, well, let's just get this over with. It is, of course, and this is undisputed fact, the best of the prequel trilogies. Uh, but like I say, you know, that's like, you're the, you're, the, you're the cleverest kid in the special school. You know, by this stage, I think so many people have gone around on the internet and beaten up the prequel trilogy. I, I just don't want to repeat what they said. Uh, you know, go look up Red Letter Media and, and go see Mr. Plinkett's reviews of the prequel trilogies because that's kind of definitive. So to kind of zero in on a few things, you know, he is tricked into being evil. He isn't seduced by evil. He's hoodwinked and he's not that bright. And that misses the point. He's supposed to have been seduced by power. He isn't. He's clever words uh, trick him into going, OK, I'll be evil if that's going to give you what I want. And then he does, and he goes off and murders lots of children, which, to be honest, is something he's previously done anyway. Our, our kind of distant loathing of George Lucas for what he has done, which we're kind of over now since he's handed over the reins to Disney, which is presumably going to be fine, is that he actually had to go back and do a pickup for a bit where Obi-Wan Kenobi, whilst looking at the burning Darth Vader before him, goes, oh yes, I'll pick up his lightsaber because I have to get that Luke later. Someone had to point that out to him. Someone had to say, oh yeah, do you know about seeing Star Wars? Well, Luke Wong Kenobi goes, oh yes, your father would have wanted you to have this when you were old enough. He completely forgot about it. Did this man even watch Star Wars before he wrote this film? Let us look on back on the prequel trilogy as a whole, and it should have been the great friendship between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker, and it all goes terribly sour, and isn't it sad and terribly tragic? It isn't. The two barely have any screen time together. In every film, they split them up. The only interesting character is the Emperor. The Emperor is gorgeous to watch in this film. He's reveling in how evil he is. He's cackling because he's so pleased with himself. He's the most engaging character to watch. And so I think he saves the film. Ian Madrid saves the film. He's best thing in this. Uh, the story of Darth Vader, however, is now forever tainted, because you know Darth Vader is just a whiny teenager, all things said and done. Uh, but yes, isn't the last 20 minutes really epic, but then it was kind of an open goal. How could he screw it up? Well, he did in a few ways, but that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. Like The lightsabers. He didn't remember the lightsabers. Mr. Lucas, what? 
yeah, the Star Wars prequel is almost like a sort of rip-off you know, of the normal trilogy, the trilogy that everybody can agree on uh, with Star Wars, which is that, it, yeah, it's just this thing that exists that's almost like a parody of the thing that it's trying to be a part of, unlike Sky High, which is a complete rip-off of Harry Potter using superheroes instead of magicians, but actually survives that process to be in my opinion slightly more than just a second i mean later on we had percy jackson which even if you're really i don't mind this i think this is fine you still like yeah but it is just a ripoff of harry potter whereas sky high i think is a quality ripoff of harry potter time in your lives for sky high absolutely absolutely i i stumbled upon this i think probably on one of the streaming sites, um, something had been mentioned to me, um, finally got round to seeing it, because I, I think it was just, I don't know, something about the marketing, something that just seemed unappealing, like it was going to be really young and just not my cup of tea, and actually watching it and thoroughly enjoying it. You know, it's fun to do that, take those, uh, cut that mashup of kind of superheroes and, like you say, absolutely Harry Potter completely, and uh, done very well. Very entertaining, you know, really enjoyed it. It wasn't, I imagine, hugely popular, kind of was there and then just kind of disappeared. I think one of the things that may, I can't, I can't be certain, but may have stood slightly in the way of Sky High enjoyed too much success is that it, it features in it a young man who's a perfectly fine actor. I've seen him now in several movies and he is always competent and he has a certain amount of charm and he is he is a, a fine actor i find and 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 he is trying to build his career and the man's name the young man's name is michael angarano and he suffers from the fact that he resembles to a great degree are we ready for the noise mr leboeuf If you look at Michael Angarano and Shia LaBeouf together in the same place at the same time, you would say, oh, oh, I confused those two actors. Yes. Uh, he's the, yeah, right. He's the one that looks like Shia LaBeouf. And so people, and Soxy was front and center on the poster. There could have been people who just looked at the poster and went, oh, not that guy. I'm not going to go and see him in something. So, you know, that is a bit of a hurdle for being an actor. Uh, Michael Angarano is like the anti LaBeouf. He's actually pretty good, but nowhere near as famous. Um, so that's a problem. Kurt Russell also, I think, is a problematic star. For Kurt Russell, fans kurt russell gives you extra kurt russell in the film that's always a good thing but some people are not really kurt russell fans and they don't get kurt russell and so despite the fact that his uh moment in this movie his role is played perfectly and riffs off the very kurt russellness of kurt russell i think there are many people who are like kurt who uh the harry potter thing is obviously going to be off-putting to some people and the fact i think that disney probably wanted to fly it under the Potter radar I think they may have felt they were sailing a bit close to the wind on this one so they kind of tried to make it a bit more quiet oh and of course Sky High features Bruce Campbell but Bruce Campbell is famous for doing cameos and so therefore only Bruce Campbell fans really knew that it was going to be happening and there aren't enough of them to make a decent cinema audience but all of them enjoyed it so yeah it had lots of things going for it but unfortunately 
they couldn't add up to pulling people into cinemas. But I think after all, Sky High is weirdly a cult movie made by Disney. So how weird is that? I'm a big fan, and and, and you won't take Sky High from me. Uh, that reminds me of something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's talk about Serenity, seeing as nobody picked up on that. Nobody will I'll take a sky from me. Brand coach, oh, uh, right, okay. generic MP3 playing device at this time. I've said it like four times. Yes, uh, Serenity was here this year, and it's a big, 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 big bomb. Like, it really lost money. It's weird. We we had this in 2004 as well. Many of the biggest box office disappointments of all time came at this time. And Serenity, unfortunately, was in that category. It really didn't play at the cinema. And what they found was that a vocal, decent television audience that have been sold out by television networks and even doing all of their internet PR and working their internet voodoo cannot pull in enough people to justify a feature film. I think that was possibly news to everyone. Like, it's, people were surprised. I don't actually care that uh, it didn't. I mean, I know it would have made a lot of difference to the, obviously, the executives and the people involved in making it. But I think that Serenity is what it is. It is for the fans. And it is, you know, a fitting end to something that people felt a great loss about fans of Firefly. And it kind of goes, well, here you go. Here is Here is something. We give you this. You know, as uh, we can't have done the series we wanted to do, but have this and it will, you know, hopefully kind of get you happy. And, and that's what it did. I think it, it was like maybe it was good that there aren't any more. Like, I, I don't think I would have wanted to see anyway, any more without spoilers, like not having Walsh in it. You know, it would have been I would have felt that lost if I'd seen more of that for that character to be missing. So I, I think that. Um, maybe that was the right. You kind of did that. It was for the fans. That's it. Put an end on that. Yeah, I have to say, I felt exactly the same. When I saw the Avengers, I was like, I'm kind of done with S.H.I.E.L.D. If they, now that they've killed Coulson, I don't see how they could possibly, oh, wait a second, hang on. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that this is the thing. Unfortunately, that kind of sets a precedent. It's like, uh, oh, and he flew us in, and then he died like a leaf on the wind, and then they got the series renewed, and then he was alive again, somehow. Uh Yeah, apparently, these things mean nothing. They're important in the movie to give people motivation, but if it becomes inconvenient to have people being dead... They'll find a way around it. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's slightly different than the superhero universe or someone to come back from the dead because people come back from the dead all the time in superhero movies because the technology is there to do that. You don't want that poignancy removed. You don't want that thing you had and be cheated from it. The reason I love Firefly is from the very, very first episode where they're standing outside their ship. You've got the villain and he's monologuing, you know, I will hunt you down. I will find you wherever you are. The main guy, Mal, he's just like, I don't think so, and kicks him into the exhaust port and kills him. And it's that finality, that kind of, oh, wow, this is not like other things, is what people fell in love with, right? They, so I would have felt a bit cheated if they'd, they'd done that and there was more of it. I mean, I'm not saying... It's, I was just trying to convey that the entire se- season one of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. made me feel a bit cheated, to be honest. Oh, it says that he's fine, everybody. Well, he's fine. not totally fine, as things later are revealed, if you stuck with the series. Well, yes, I know But not to, not to lose sight on, on Serenity. 
Yes, it does give a satisfactory conclusion to a short-lived, excellent series. And yes, all the stories that I'm sure Joss Whedon had in his head are now not going to be told. We never learn what book's backstory is, etc., etc. But for what it is, it puts a lovely tombstone at all. And I don't, you don't mind, Wash dying is fine because it's a climax of a film and there is sacrifice to what we have. And Mal, a Mal, a man who has no cause, gets a cause again and becomes extremely dangerous as a result. Satisfying. The only criticism I have of it is, even though morally the scandal behind the planet Miranda is huge in context of the universe, it's hard to put across to the audience about why this is such an outrageous thing. Because, you know, we obviously can't see the wider ramifications or the revelation would be about the origin of the Reavers and how the government is to blame for all this. So it's, it's, it's slightly hard to buy that the agent is crushed because the cause he believed in, you know, he's, it's been exposed to him that his leaders are flawed and corrupt. And so therefore he is, he's lost everything because he no longer has faith to build a better world. He's lost, had that taken away from him. I, I didn't quite buy that. I mean, in terms of beats, I'll take it because fair enough, but I, it didn't quite sell it to me, but it exp- all the things that were set up in the series, the origin of uh, River and everything else like that, beautifully resolved. The relationships, the romantic relationships, well done. I mean, you know, it, it, it had to be talked about. The other thing that may have to be talked about, I can't make a call on this. Gentlemen, does anyone have anything burning they wish to dis- share about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? Because I feel I'm a bit pottered out after the, the what, three that we've done already. I We've talked about the trajectory of Harry Potter, we've, well, in films anyway. Yeah, we've talked about this, that, and the other. Oh, the wife is coming. She's coming to stand over here. Potter, so, yeah. Tell us, what are your thoughts? I feel sometimes the films take away some of the, the interesting factors of the books. And I think this is definitely one of those. The book has more substance to it. In the film, it doesn't broad out as much. So unless you actually know the Harry Potter universe quite well, you could get quite lost. Hmm. I don't feel because I don't know it from the books, but I I didn't feel lost in the film. But I did. I mean, yes, I understand that there's lots of material I am not privy to because I haven't read the book. I heard people saying, oh, there's times I didn't understand where that came from or whether. And it was like, well, you kind of have to go through all the backstory and the books to kind of understand it. Consulting the Wikipedia entry helped me enormously before going in to see the film. The problem is that at this stage, the books are getting quite dense. Yeah. You know, up to this point, the books have been light and it's been reasonably easy to adapt. Yeah. But now we've got serious plots. You know, they only get more heavy after this point, to be honest. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, it's almost like, it's so much. How do you put it all in? The director of this one didn't quite get it right. You know, like the one who would later complete all the films, he had a better edge on it. So I think this is the one where it starts at the Wizard's Cup. And um, if you haven't read it, you'll have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I mean, literally, you're kind of going, oh, we're not starting, a, you know, the privet kind of road thing. And we're not, oh, where are the diesels? OK, all right. We're somewhere else. Where are we? Yeah, there's already like, quite a bit before that in the books. Yeah. So already you're kind of like, OK, sure. But they don't really have much choice because it's, it's just such a massive beast. <laughs> to try and digest and put into this. However, you know, I like the trial. You know, I like those aspects of it. It's good fun. And uh, it's good to see that that dragon looks gorgeous, you know, on they the screen. They did do a great job visually uh, with the so dragons. 
for, for the fans of the, you know, it's great to see that. But yes, in terms of a film, yes, it's a bit bloated. It's, it's suffering a bit. Yeah, we know what's, what's coming up. And I think to be fair, we could probably look back on when we get towards the end, we could look back on that. And I just thought, well, let's, let's, uh, skip over this one well, the well I was say that there's a, the, the writer and director of harry potter and the goblet of fire skipped over harry well, there's, a, there's a few things i'd like to say just a few on. things interestingly in terms of books goblet of fire was the genuine tipping point i mean it, harry potter was big before goblet of fire is when it became harry potter seriously it had over like eight million pre-orders the book this is the time people were queuing for the midnight opening to go buy the book and I would also like to note, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire made more money than Star Wars this year. And that in itself is phenomenal. And I completely forgot that Gary Oldman was in this. I think the one that most people forget that's in there is David Tennant. They forget all about his character and how absolutely insane that character is. Because in the books, it's much broader. That's the problem. It kind of doesn't flesh out properly everybody. I mean, really, you know, you'd have to have two books for every, every two films for every book to really do it justice. But that would be insane, you know, unless Pete Jackson was directing them all. Funny you should mention Peter Jackson. What was he doing this year? Oh, yeah, that's right. Remaking uh, King Kong uh, as a three hour movie. Um, I like the three hour remake. It's my one of my favorite. Well, oh, right. OK. If you take Peter Jackson's career as being before Lord of the Rings and after King Kong is my favorite Peter Jackson movie after he start after he made the beginning of Lord of the Rings. However, having said that, what he made after the first Lord of the Rings movie was three Lord of the Rings movies and then three Hobbit movies. So I suppose it, it has a good, but no, I, I quite like it in and of its own regard where lots of people think that it's terrible. I, I like it too. Uh, but it, it does kind of mean it's famous for the fact that it's Godzilla doesn't turn up for an hour into the movie. King Kong, not Godzilla. Godzilla doesn't appear at all. King Kong. King Kong, we're with the entire movie. Where was the giant lizard? Rubbish. Zero. <laughs> One star. It's a technically brilliant film. It's reasonably well written. The characters are interesting enough. The setup is very vivid and interesting. I was never bored throughout. I'll give it that. Even though it takes an hour for the ape to turn up, I was never bored. But goodness me, Peter Jackson does need someone to edit him down. Weirdly, though, in the direct four hours director's cut, one of the things that was cut probably more for ratings reasons than anything else. When they go to the, the, you know, the Death Island, there's this whole bit. And in the movie, you get a bit with giant wasps, which is great, uh, particularly if you're scared of wasps, which I am. You're like, wow, that's terrifying. But then they get away from the giant wasps and they almost get eaten by Cthulhu-esque tentacles. And that bit is only in the director's cut. And I'm like, I'm having too much fun. I don't care about the giant ape, to be honest. I think that's probably the best way to approach this movie is I don't care about the giant ape. I just care about the stuff that is happening. People heralded, you know, Avatar, for God's sake, for world creation. But Skull Island is a beautiful bit of ecosystem that the work on those, because you've got freaking dinosaurs and and yes, and you've got these because you like uh, worms. It's fake. I mean, I immediately rushed out and got the art book and loved devoured it. And I agree. There is a there is a pleasure, actually, in watching all of that. Yes, it's not, it's not like The Hobbit. I'm not getting, I'm not kind of sitting uncomfortably going, oh, for God's sake, when will this end? It is indulgent, yes. Um, but by God, does it look pretty? And I, I must admit, yeah, I, I was fine with it at the time. And yeah, I did watch the extended version. 
yeah, sure. I, I'll sit there watching CGI, fantastic kind of monstrous creations running around on screen. Think, Why the hell not? I think my biggest problem with it is not how pretty it looks or any of those things. I think that's fine. I think it was badly cast. I think Jack Black is too annoying in it. Well, he's too Jack Black, he, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> And he takes away from some of that prettiness and some of that beauty of what could have been a really good film by having the wrong cast member by, with Jack Black in there. They needed somebody more serious. Yeah, they needed someone. I think, to be honest, that Jack Black part should have been Kirsten Stewart. That would have brought a no, serious gravitas. don't need Kirsten Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Worthington? Uh, yeah, that's right. There's too much joy in the film. Let's suck it. This was Jack Black's attempt at the sort of Jim Carrey thing. I'm going to do a serious role that isn't all Jack Black. At the end of the day, it doesn't work. Jack Black is trying... There's a couple of other movies, and I haven't watched the other movies where he's tried to do something a bit more dramatic. But this was one where it's like, it's not a Jack Black role. And it really doesn't come across. You know, if you saw Jim Carrey, the whole point is that that character is a bit of a huckster. He's a bit of a con artist. He's a bit of a this, that, or the other. But it has to be fairly serious and buttoned down. If they could have got Carrey, he would have been the man to do that because he could have done all of that stuff, and you know it. Ian, you... King Kong, for you? Really? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I did. I went and saw it in gold class cinema. So you have a big comfy chair you can put your feet up on, and there's only about thirty other people in the cinema with you. Uh, like I say, I was not bored, and I was willing just to go with it. Uh, obviously, even though you're enjoying a film, you do become a bit aware that it is long, uh, and so you are you are kind of not relieved, but kind of like, well, it was, it was, I was beginning to feel like I wanted to be somewhere else. Uh, I'm sure a four hour version on DVD would have been fine because you can dip in and out of those. Uh, it, it was, it was all kinds of fun. Although, although the bit where they're revealing he's type, he was on his typewriter, the scriptwriter, he's typing in Skull Island and they do that strange sort of swinging camera that puts serious portent on as he types out the word Skull Island. And it's like, uh, it's not as scary as, as all that, is it? Oh, um, come on, it's, it's pulpy. It's very pulpy. Yeah, that, that yes, well, you know, you're just kind of going with it. I let myself just go with it. And, and you know, I, ha- I honestly, I have not sat down and, and sat through the entirety of the original uh, King Kong, which I suppose I really should do at some point on my bucket list. Clearly, clearly, Pete Jackson loves it because there are because there are lots of little scenes that are direct lifts or you know influenced by it. Even little things like the you know the landscape, like the you know just different things like uh, you'll see sequences that you'll be familiar with if you if you if you know the original. And a lot of I, I like how much thought was put into the relationship between Kong and Naomi Watts's character. Uh, she's, she's not just a screaming blonde who's picked up by a monster and needs to be rescued. There's a, there's a genuine kind of relationship yeah. that's going on there, which I thought was well handled. We're getting towards the end of 2005 now, or rather, we always range all over the place. I'm going to start with a list of, of further disappointments. And I'm going to put on that list Charlie of the Chocolate Factory, uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Electra. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith. As, as, as much as I am the, the sci-fi guy who has the sci-fi, you know, what's your opinion on this, Ian? I, whenever Tim Burton comes up, I want to put a spotlight on Justin and go, so, Charlie the Chocolate Factory and Corpse Bride, go. 
well, Corpse Bride is more my kind of thing. Loved it. You know, that's pretty much quintessential, you know, Tim Burton in a bottle. Lovely stuff. Uh, you know what? The thing that surprised me about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that it's that, that um, it exists. Uh, it, another case of like, why remake it? Because it is so close to the original. Like, I grew up, obviously, as we all did in kind of Britain, um, seeing the musical. But, you know, I my memory of the book was a little hazy. So I always kind of assumed when Tim Burton was making it, that somehow I'd missed some quintessential point of the story that we were going to see, like, Tim Burton really getting into grips on it. And then when I watched it, I went, oh, this is exactly the same as the musical. So essentially, then, the musical was right. And... When I then began to do that, make those compa- comparisons, irrespective of obviously the the visuals, Gene. At the end of the day, Gene Wilder is much better Willy Wonka, and he's yeah. much mm. more he's much more engaging. Way back in the day uh, of the eighties kids podcast, Willy Wonka and Shocked Up Factory yeah. was my number one favorite movie of the seventies, and due in no small part to the fact that. Gene Wilder does a performance in that movie that is almost supernatural in its epic ability to convey so many different things. Amiability, geniality, good sense of humour, happiness, terrifying, sinister evil. And he dances between these different emotional pitches and levels. He knows he's in a family movie, but yet he manages that performance, which I don't think I've ever seen another human being convey you know we always talk about like pixar movies oh it's got something for the adults and something for the kids well in that movie gene wilder can say one line and the kids can take it on one level that he's the cheeky cheery clown like and the adults are like hang on this is a bit much and in the same breath and at the same moment something johnny depp singularly sells out in order to do oh i'm being weird didn't get that performance at all that's like that's not what i had in my mind even if I wasn't aware of Gene Wilder's performance, I was like, that isn't working to me, for me, uh, at all. For that reason, I just like, yeah, I'm sorry, this is not adding. It looks pretty, but seriously, it isn't anywhere in the same league as the original film. So I have to kind of go, then you, that's what's the point of that, <laughs> really, at the end of the day. To just talk about it myself, a letter came to light a few years ago, written by Gene Wilder to the studio when he was accepting the role and giving his thoughts and ideas. The the entire costume is laid out there, indeed, and how he wants to portray Willy Wonka is totally unpredictable. You don't know what he's going to do next. It was his idea, and it's in this letter he wrote, saying I should start by walking out slowly with a cane, lose the cane, yeah. fall over, tumble, stand up, and, and do a bow. Because at that point, you, the audience has no idea what to expect from me. Uh, that was yeah. all his, that was all Gene Wilder's genius. Yeah. And let's just, yeah. let's just all glow for a moment that Gene Wilder isn't dead. He's still alive. It seems baffling to want to remake this classic and take it in a different direction. I, I haven't read the original book, I must confess, uh, which is called Child and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, did he have like daddy issues with his dentist in that novel? I no, somehow no, I no, doubt no. it. That's all, that's all, that's that, all Tim Burton. Johnny Depp. Why, why would they want to have Willy Wonka, which as I said in the open skit, is channeling Michael Jackson. 2005 was not a good time to be associated with Michael Jackson. He was going through the throes of a number of court cases at the time of an unsavory nature of which he was at the very least acquitted of. 
There were things that were in the original book that were taken, though. There are little hints at things that were in in the original book to do with his daddy issues, but it wasn't actually laid out. But things like the squirrels and things were definitely in the original book, so that was yeah. all changed for the for the next for the original one, as we call it, the Gene Wilder one. So yeah, Gene Wilder made it more fun. <laughs> but yeah, carry on the end. Sorry. No, no, I was kind of reaching the end of my end of my point. Yes. So uh, in the list of disappointing adaptations of uh, children's books uh, this year, Narnia. It's hard to top the was it the nineties early nineties uh, adaptation on BBC. Which looks dated now, I suppose, but that was yes. that was quite affecting to me at the time. I thought it was all right. The problem is the source material. I'm sorry, but it is like you know you can only do so much with these, and it is it is by far one of the weakest of the series. You know, um, the story, and so it suffers from that. It, you know, it looks great. Obviously, they're really they're really you know they've got the weather guys. They're shot in New Zealand. They're trying to recapture the spirit of the kind of Lord of the Rings and. And it does, it just a bit dull, but then the story's a bit dull. You say that's, well, in my feelings is that it's, it's one of the most accessible of them all because it's children and they've been, you know, yes. it's the evacuation from London and they go through a magic wardrobe and enter a magical world. Whereas the other ones are much more quick about just shunting you into the magical world that's already been established. So I've always felt Land of Witch the Wardrobe is kind of its, its strongest footing in terms of entering the Narnia universe. It was it was fine. It's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What do you want? I, I felt it was a reasonably good adaptation of it, and uh, it, it's it's kind of sad in a funny way that they weren't able to complete their series because I'd love them to see the last battle. I want to see that crap go down on American cinema. That would have been awesome. A couple of things uh, that come up about. First of all, yes, it's not. Uh, it doesn't from the offset assume the gravitas of something like uh, Lord of the Rings, despite the fact that uh, I don't know how many people actually know this, but J.R. Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis yeah. were chums they were friends all of this stuff lord of the rings hobbit and and these things were things that they did as hobbies around their uh you know mm. careers as, as university professors and they talked to one another and so it all comes from the same place to a certain degree but yeah i mean narnia the first line the witch in the wardrobe is definitely the most accessible one you kind of understand what's going on there's a wardrobe there's a witch there's a line i mean uh, i wasn't entirely on board with the the bit where the lion uh, told the white witch that he had a particular set of skills <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, no. It, it, I mean, the other thing about this, one of the hilarious things that keeps coming up is that uh, a lot of the money for this and the two tanked prequels, and the reason why they actually got to three, not prequel sequels, uh, the reason they actually got to the third one at all is because this company that's uh, Christian based and trying to get the Christian message out there uh, financed the movies quite heavily, and I think the reason they didn't get to the end is because suddenly they kind of occurred to them that C.S. Lewis was a bit of a mystic. I mean, yes, he was trying to get kids into Christianity via Narnia, but he kind of, I think to a certain extent, he accepted that normal things that Christians think uh, hard, hardline Christians I think are appropriate. Like, well, the kids have got to know about uh, Lot giving his daughters over to be raped. They've got to know about it sometimes in the Bible. You know, they think that. C.S. Lewis thinks, no, we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about. He, he's trying to 
uh, in a way, modernise the approaches to the Christian theology. And the problem with that is that in Narnia, if you weren't told 100%, oh yeah, this guy was a big Christian, he thought everybody should be, you know, Christian, you wouldn't know. There's no, no you can't, I mean, there's things in it that are kind of metaphorical Christian allegory. But the problem is that because Christianity is put together from dozens of bits of other pre-Christian religions anyway, it comes across as, I mean, you know, the Matrix is about as Christian as as Narnia, really. Harry Potter is. Yeah, exactly. They're, I mean, they, I mean the, they all hate Harry Potter for that, but actually, you know, oh, it's so anti-Christian. Well, actually, J.K. Rowling is, is a Christian. 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 J.K. Rowling yeah. is a Christian, that's a strange thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I mean, yeah, so that, 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 I think that's another thing. I mean, I think that's why they didn't make any more after the dawn of the Look, uh, voyage of the Because they suddenly realised this is too complex to teach kids about what we want them to learn about Christianity. I'm a fire-breathing atheist, and even I, I do not have a problem with Chronicles of Narnia. It, it's fine. Honestly, I, I have no real problem with it. It's, it's not proselytising in a particularly annoying no. way. I enjoy the way it muddies the waters adequately. <laughs> it just makes it all very confusing. Uh, that's, I, mean, that's, I quite C- like that. C.S. Lewis is, uh, as far as Christian, because I was a big Christian once upon a time, um, and in Christian circles, especially, no, I'd say not evangelical, but certainly more kind of literalist Bible rules, everything at the corners. C.S. Lewis is huge. Uh, you know, mere Christianity is a must-read book for Christians. If C.S. Lewis had lived 2,000 years ago, he would have books in the Bible. You know, there would be, you know, now let's turn to uh, ch- chapter 3, verse 3 of the screw tape letters, please, now, children. It, it, it would just be that way. Uh, it, it's a shame he, he was born so many years afterwards because he missed out on being truly legendary as a result. Talking about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis loved uh, Tolkien's writing and put him forward for like a Nobel Prize or something like that in, in literature, which he didn't get. Uh, but Tolkien didn't like Chronicles of Narnia one bit. And the thing that really broke it for him was when Father Christmas turned up. That was a kind of throw down the manuscript moment. You ruined everything. Yeah, that is that. To be fair, of all the movies, that is the bizarrest thing, and it's weird because it's in the movie that people. It's in the story that is the most loved of the Narnia ones. It's the first book, and blah blah blah. And it is quite obviously that because C.S. Lewis is just doing it for a bit of a lark at that stage. He goes, "Why not put Father Christmas in it?" And then by the time you get to the Magician's Nephew, it's like, "Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. That was kind of a problem." Yeah. So yeah. So there we go. That was so. I think *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, the big uh, production Hollywood production version of it, just highlights all of those little wrinkles and niggles. And and then of course you get things like *Electra*, which are all wrinkles and niggles and no actual story whatsoever. I didn't see this till years after it came out. Does anyone else even care to discuss it? I just thought I'd mention it. Oh, you, awesome. Yeah, I'm done really. I mean, I went. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I, I saw it on DVD like a year later, and I have no memory of what it was about at all. It's just gone. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Basically, uh, it's about her being a ninja, and there are other ninjas, and then it gets a bit... The problem is that it suffers from that same syndrome, or a syndrome that comes to be more where the main character is incredible. She's like... Actually, Jennifer Garner's Electra in this is the prototype for the heroines of uh, Twilight and The Hunger Games. She does all that moping and just being miserable about absolutely everything and and her entire life is is revolving around this misery and her poor me 
I hadn't really realised that, but Electra is the beginning of young adult female depressed heroines. It's not the woman from uh, Twilight at all. Ah, there we go. Right, so there we go. We found the only noteworthy thing about Electra. Finally, uh, in the disappointments category, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, which was okay, but it was a disappointment. And I remember going to see this, and Ian, you were coming to visit me that day. But I knew what time you were arriving and what time the film started. And I thought, well, you know, it's a film about, you know, Brad Pitt and Alan Jolie and Johnny firing guns at each other. That'll pass 90 minutes until it's finished. And I remember you ringing me in the cinema. I was the only person in the cinema, so it wasn't so bad that I had my phone on. And I remember saying to you, oh, yeah, I'm just watching the end of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Sorry, I'll be with you in like 25 minutes. And that was the point. It was like an hour and a half's worth of movie crammed into two hours and ten minutes I just no sorry the ending is very odd it just kind of peters out they've solved their relationship issues and they're in love with each other again now so um end credits uh forget about the bad guys uh, they killed them all that's okay I think my problem with Mr and Mrs Smith is go and watch the War of the Roses instead because actually it's more fun no, oh, yeah. There's no fun in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, there's a lot of not, not much fun in yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is about as much fun as you will never have at the cinema. So let's move on to things which are fun. Now, unfortunately, one of the things that are fun uh, is, is not well liked. I mean, it, it seems to be, I'm diverting from popular opinion quite a lot here. Plus, it includes an added dash of sheer LeBeouf. Uh, oh, warning! Yes, exactly. Um, well, we've already had a sort of false Sheer LeBeouf warning, but this is the real thing. I, re- I quite, I understand the limitations, but I quite liked Constantine. On, for, on the subject of, uh, comic book, uh, adaptations, History of Violence, most people don't know that's a graphic novel, but it is. That's a, one of Cronenberg's movies. In fact, uh, the first one in Cronenberg's, uh, later career sort of, He's just kind of diverged into this weird, muted, dramatic kind of uh, playing with identity. Not, uh, I wish he would do some more body horror, but he hasn't. There's the remake of Assault on Precinct 13, which I kind of like, but we don't have to really talk about that because it just kind of exists. Um, and then there's two that I like that that are quite unusual, possibly, for me to like. Zathura is the better uh, of the adaptations of the sort of Jumanji-type books uh, and is mostly ignored and just like heaven is a delightful romantic comedy with a supernatural twist which i really liked so those are my picks of the last things just to mention on our way out the door i don't other people may have things to add but uh, gentlemen any thoughts on any of these movies uh, I um, didn't mind constantine i haven't watched it again since and it has since become very vague in my memory and i know there's a new there's a new series of it which is a little bit closer to the uh, source material. I don't really know the source material that well, so I didn't really have much issue with Keanu Reeves uh, playing that role. I quite enjoyed it, to be honest. Now, having watched, I've watched most of the series of Constantine as it has gone out, because I've got it on on Amazon Prime. Uh, and then they took a mid-season break. Oh, how we love them. And, and I haven't watched since then, because I'm waiting for it to get to a point. They're having a real difficulty with tone on the show, which is a shame because the performance of the, the main character is stellar 
Uh, and I'm not just saying that because the actor comes from Swansea. I'm not. But he does. And it is a great, yeah, I really like, he's really working it. And he's just not getting the scripts at the moment. They can't get the tone right. And ironically, the Keanu Reeves vehicle movie, I think, gets the tone much more bob on. The thing about it is, you could have gone, oh, this isn't Constantine. This is the Dresden Files movie, and it would have borne about as much relation to the source material and still been the same movie. So it's not really Constantine. It's not the Dresden Files. It's Keanu Reeves is once again the chosen one fighting Satan. Fun fact, everybody, The History of Violence was the last movie to have a mass VHS release. After this, they didn't bother. Yes, there's a, there's a, we seem to have bypassed horror this year. There's not much to say about it. Amityville Horror is a remake of Amityville Horror. What can you say about it? Exorcism has Emily Rose. Um, yes, it's okay for a girl to be tortured to death during a horrible exorcism because the story of it will inspire people to go to church. Um, uh, the atheist inside me wants to tell them to all F off. What else is that? House of Wax. Um, worth watching to see Paris Hilton get killed nastily, I suppose, if you're into that kind of thing. Ring 2, what a terrible sequel. Let's not speak of it anymore. Skeleton Key, uh, blonde uh, heroiness uh, goes through a maze of, of horribleness for a film then has a horrible thing happen to it at the end. Uh, I've described like a mouse running around a maze and then before getting eaten by a cat at the end. Well, there we go. Uh, white noise, uh, attempt to do some J-horror type stuff. Alone in the Dark, uh, I didn't enjoy, but my sister watched it and she's into a horror and she really liked it, so I'm prepared to give it a pass for that and anything else. Uh, have I missed anything out? Cursed? No, uh, horror is... is... Saw 2. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, Saw 2. I quite enjoyed Saw 2. Yeah. I didn't I... mind Saw 2 at all. Yeah. I thought it was better than Saw. I haven't seen anything after that, so I can't comment thereafter. But I quite liked Saw 2. I, I think I think other Justin like... will speak up for the series because he's a big fan of the Saw series. So, uh, Cursed, well. Wes Craven's a werewolf movie. Was that this year? God, yeah. I thought it was much older than that. God, that was awful. Right, okay, yeah, let's go on. Uh, they remade, uh, talk, uh, talking of remakes and well, sequels and stuff, which we weren't really, but let's just get away from this depressing morass of horror blandness. Uh, the remake of Assault and Precinct 13, I quite like that. You can't go wrong with a bit of Lawrence Fishburne and Ethan yeah. Hawke and Assault and Precinct 13, but shinier. I mean, the problem with is that the Assault and Precinct, the original movie, was trying to push the envelope and be very exploitation-y. This is just a thriller, so... That as just a thriller, it passes an hour and a half. It's all right. Just like heaven, I might be the no. I, I'm sure you've seen it. Just I'm sure I've, I've made you watch just uh, like I, heaven. I think you did. Although to be honest, I can't remember much about it. It's so. the one where Reese Witherspoon believes that she's dead. Sorry, people who haven't seen it. I suppose spoilers in a romantic comedy aren't really there. But she haunts, therefore, Mark, the Hulk, Mark oh, Ruffalo, yeah, yeah. Um, in the thing, That's and they fall in love. Right. I just like one the supernatural part of it, and the fact that uh, he tries to exorcise her in every conceivable way, and it, it obviously doesn't take. Um, but I, I actually just really like the way that they use the supernatural to do a, an odd couple romantic comedy, and it really works. And I thought the characters were very well drawn for such a light piece of frippery. And I thought that the guy who played Napoleon Dynamite, I kind of, I didn't, I never got Napoleon Dynamite, but I got John Hedder in this. I was like, oh, that's what's supposed to be funny. So it had many things to love about it. And I just find it very charming. So I just thought I'd, I'd mention it. Have you seen this, Ian? No. 
I think it's a nice movie. Do you think it's a nice movie? Why? I like that movie, yeah. The it cover was... of Just Like Heaven by The Cure is terrible, by the way. <laughs> but the rest of it's fine. If they just bought, paid The Cure, it would have been so much better. But they didn't. Uh, and finally, Zathura. Have we all seen Zathura? I yes. I, totally I saw this quite late. I, I quite liked Jumanji, I'd say at the time. And yeah, I watched this and went, okay, it is exactly the same plot as Jumanji. But I agree. I actually preferred it. It's something about it is much tighter. The fact that it's all constrained within this house adds a, an element of tension to the situation that that Jumanji doesn't really have. Again, I think some of the things that didn't do so well this year were victims of circumstances beyond their control. And in this case, one the the, the spaceman guy is played mm. by Dax Shepard. Dax Shepard happens to look a lot like that one guy from Scrubs. And so that's really disconcerting until you know, oh, it's Dax Shepard. It's from the, a novel that is this for kids, which is the same sort of idea as, as Jumanji, but it's a space themed board game this time. So people were like, oh, it's just like a space ripoff thing. And the other thing is that people went, oh, who's making that? John Favreau, that guy from Swingers. He can't direct a yes. movie. He's certainly never going no, to revolutionise the world of comic book movies in any way, shape or form. So, yeah, he wasn't a trusted director. It was a kid's movie. It just didn't didn't play for various reasons. But that's that's the way it is, you know. Uh, Ian, do you see Zathura? Yes, I have seen Zathura. It was absolutely fine and totally enjoyable and better than Jumanji. Uh, well, yes. there we go. Which one thing we can all agree on, it's better than Jumanji. Uh, well, you can't because you've not seen it. But seen yes, it. in a very strange way and without, a, not an unqualified way, we have gone from Eon Flux to Zathura uh, in 2005. So I think that signals that we're, we're at the end of the road. Um, oh, and in your roundup of horror, uh, you totally didn't mention Hostel. So any big was, Hostel fans who well, now want to put us in a torture dungeon and kill us for this omission, where might they go to start stalking us, Ian? Not just Hostel, but also Mist Horror was Dominion prequel to Exorcist. Uh, oh dear, what a shame. Well, I think perhaps we would much prefer to watch Nanny McPhee, which is probably a more heartwarming film, I'm told. Anyway, but if you want to bemoan us about all the films you missed, like uh, Shark Boy and Lava Girl, you can go to our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that 80s as in numbers, 80s, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to a podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so e-i-g-h-t-i-e-s-kids.podomat.com, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to... Uh, com, where you can find all manner of stuff, including the archive of all our past shows and indeed an archive of the one video broadcast that we've done at the moment. There are more video uh, broadcasts uh, to come, uh, not least our summer predictions, which will be going live on the 7th of March. I'm mentioning that in advance so that people have time to book some time on a, well, it's Saturday morning in the UK. It's Saturday evening in Oz. And if you're American... You probably won't be 
tuning in because it'll be like the middle of the night. But yes, we will be there live to do our summer predictions in in a few weeks time. Uh, in fact, three weeks time from now. So so book that in. We're also going to do the hundredth live and all that, and that's because of all the media stuff that's on my website at the moment. So if all that's too exciting for you, if you find all the moving pictures and sounds and stuff too much activity, if you want something a little bit more static but still beautiful to contemplate in your own time at your leisure justin where might they find such a thing uh, well you can find examples of my work on my deviant art page uh justin wyatt deviant uh where there are definitely things of a more fairy tale quality which you might get in case you're missing our discussion on the brothers grim oh is, was that this year yes apparently brothers grim. yes apparently so Terry Gilliam. Oh, I was I was waiting to talk Justin Justin about it. Oh, it's kind of nestled. Yes, it's nestled at the bottom yes, in a place where yeah, you couldn't I, really I, see I, it. I, I can't spy, unfortunately. Um, but we can I'm just going to say, and this is probably a great place to run for the exit. I didn't mind it. Yeah, okay, it's not Gilliam esque. It's more of a. It was kind of just a movie. But I like Matt Damon. I like Heath Ledger. Um, I like the stuff. I yeah. like, you know, everyone in it is good. It's all yeah. right. It's just not very Gilliam-esque, but I like it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I would, I agree with those points. There we go. That, that seems to settle that. So right. official on the 2005 show <laughs> of the Rand of the 80s kids, it turns out Brothers Grimm. It's not very Gilliam-esque, but it's all right. There we go. Headline. News. <laughs> shocker. Ian, thoughts on that? Or are you reeling? I'm reeling, I suppose. Well, actually, I'm more distracted by the fact we're all about to die from lack of oxygen because our ship has run out of power whilst we're in the Crab Nebula. Ah, right. Yes, that is a very good... Hang on. What's this switch here? Emergency oxygen restoration and electrical power. I'll just press it. Oh, there we go. We're all safe. Great. That's resolved that problem. So uh, we'll see you all next time on Revenge of the Eighty Kids. Bye-bye. Bye. I am off to the holodeck. See ya.